Amen. So inspired by the testimonies of those that live and walk amongst us. Amen. And God is wanting to do that for each and every one of us. Every single one of us has a destiny, a purpose, a call, a testimony. And Lord, we just pray that you would bring that and you'd like root that in our hearts and our lives, Lord, that we might live every minute of every day loving you and building your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. My name is Luther, Martin Luther. And this is a very special year because on the 31st of October, 2017, we will celebrate the 500th anniversary of what many consider to be the start of the Reformation. It all started when, as a young 34-year-old professor, I nailed a piece of paper to the castle church doors of Wittenberg. It wasn't even a great literary piece. It was 95 short statements speaking out against what I consider to be the despicable sale of indulgences. But can I tell you a little secret? As I was nailing that piece of paper to those doors, I had absolutely no idea that God was going to use that event to resonate through the ages and through history. Let me tell you a little bit about the time in which we lived. I lived in Europe. And to be honest with you, Europe was a little bit of a basket case. Life expectancy, a short 35 years. Mortality rates between 30 and 50%. Can you imagine having your determining whether you're going to live or die as a child based on the flip of a coin? Poverty was the norm. It was rife. And except for the very few that had wealth, it was a struggle in everyday life. Learning was reserved for the few because learning was undertaken in Latin and only a few of us could understand it. But can I tell you why Europe was a basket case? Mainly because the church was a basket case. The church could be summed up most significantly by the words that were chiseled on that great wall in Geneva, now known as the Wall of Reformation. Those words, post tenebrous lux. Now, your Latin might be a little rusty, so I'm going to help you out. After darkness, light. What was the darkness that the reformers were talking about? Well, the darkness really was the darkness that existed in the church's understanding on some key biblical foundations and doctrines which it had drifted so far from. In particular, doctrines like the doctrine of salvation. Salvation had been watered down to something which would need to be earned. Something that was worked in people's lives through the sacraments of the church and by doing things like penance. Basically, a whole lot of good works which you needed to do in order to kind of make yourself right with God. Invariably, you would fall short. And then somehow you needed to make it up before you could really become who God wanted you to be. How did God bring about this turnaround? Well, there were many of us, but I guess he did use me quite instrumentally in that process. And depending on which side of the fence you sat, 
I was either a hero. I was either a world changer. I was either the father of the Reformation. I was a general in God's army. Or I was a revolutionary. I was a heretic. I was a rebel. I was a wild boar destroying what God was creating. To some a hero, to others a devil and a demon. But I never set out to achieve any of those titles. I was simply a man deeply concerned with God and how to live in a way that pleased Him. I loved God. I loved His church. Not the organization, not the building, but the people who, like me, were seeking for truth and understood what it meant to be justified by faith, understood what it meant to receive God's free gift of grace, by God's free gift of grace, the gift of salvation. I personally saw my role as that of a reformer, not as a revolutionary. I wanted to see God bring about change from within the church. I wanted to see the church understand the true essence of God's word once again and return to those foundations that the apostles had laid early 1,500 years before. That was the cry of my heart. Man, I sometimes wish that I'd gotten this revelation earlier. I sometimes wish I didn't have to go through the pains and the struggles that I went through. It was painful. It was frustrating. But when I look back now, I see God's hand on my life. I see the process that He took me through so key to understanding and gaining the revelation that eventually set my heart free. I was born in 1483 in a small town in Germany. My father, Hans, was a blue-collar worker. He wasn't afraid of hard work. He got his hands dirty, but he was smart too. And it wasn't long before what he did and the way he worked, he was able to accumulate a few copper mines and a few copper smelters. And that really changed our, 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 our family's fortunes. My mother, Marguerite, whilst dad was busy building the business, the company, you know, the, the, the family's fortunes, she took control of the household. She loved us, but she made sure we understood godly discipline. And she put those principles and foundations in our life, which I relied on throughout my entire walk with God. As a student, I excelled. From the young age of seven, I was taught Latin. You see, Dad had a plan for me. Dad's plan was this. Through my son, Martin, we will eventually shake off these blue-collar shackles and we will not just be middle class, but we will enter the status of the elite. You see, I was going to be a lawyer. I was going to be an attorney, maybe even a judge. And with that wealth and with that status, once and for all, our family would clear that middle class hurdle and we would be somebody and someone to be reckoned with. It was a good plan. And I applied myself diligently to my studies. I went to Erfurt University, and by the age of 21, I'd graduated with both a bachelor and a master's degree in arts and began to specialize in the field of law. I was smart. I was really good at debating, so much so that I was nicknamed the philosopher. On the outside, 
everything seemed to be going so well and according to plan. But on the inside, there was a gnawing restlessness. There was this, there was this struggle because at my heart I was saying, God, I don't feel like I'm in the sweet spot of my walk with you. I was searching for truth. And I would continue to search for truth. And I can tell you, it wasn't a pleasant experience. There were three crises events that defined my life. And they were spaced five years apart and probably just as well. Any closer, who knows? They may just have killed me. But the first crisis event took place in July 1505. I was on my way back from university when suddenly a thunderstorm sprung up. And it was so severe that I thought I was going to die. There was lightning strikes all around me that they pushed me to the ground. And in that moment of desperation, I cried out to St. Anne. And St. Anne was, is, was the patron saint of mining. So she had a pretty important role in our household. And in that state of desperation, I cried out and I made a vow. And I said, St. Anne, if you will save me, I will give up all of this and I'll commit my life to that of the life of a monk. Miraculously, my life was saved, but the vow had been made. And so I decided that if I was going to give all of this up and I was going to go into the monastery, I was going to choose the toughest, the hardest, the most elite monastic order that there was, and that was the Augustinian order. For the Augustinians, there was no gray. There was black and there was white. And I determined in my heart that if there was ever going to be a monk that would get into heaven through monkery, it was going to be me. And so I set my heart into this completely. Dad was absolutely furious. How can you give all of this up, Martin? How is it possible that you can give up this degree in law and enter the monastery? He just could not understand it. And as hard as I tried to explain it, in my heart I knew I needed to do this. In my heart I was searching for truth. There was something missing. I tried to live a moral life, but I knew there needed to be more. And so I threw myself completely into the monastic tasks. I became a diligent man of prayer. I committed my life to him, and I started seeking this righteousness in his word that he promised. I attended daily confessions. When most of my colleagues would spend five minutes in the confessional, I would spend one, two, sometimes three hours confessing my sins to my confessors. In desperation, they would eventually say, Martin, please stop bringing us these minor infractions. Give us something real for which we can kind of absolve you for. But you see, it wasn't that simple for me. Because my legal mind, with my legal mind, I understood that if you broke the smallest of these laws, you might as well break them all. And in my heart and in my mind, I knew that when the Word of God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, I knew I couldn't do that for one hour, 
Never mind, live that for a lifetime. With my legal mind, I understood what the consequences were of breaking the law. And I understood only too well what the penalty of breaking that law was. I was like a madman driven by a passion to experience forgiveness that was real. But I just could never find it. My professors, they reached out to me. They said, Martin, come on, be pragmatic. Martin, God loves you. Martin, do you not love God? I remember when I was asked that question. And in desperation, I said, love God. Love God. Sometimes I hate God. A God that expects me to live up to a standard that it is impossible for me to obtain. How do you love a God that makes it impossible for you to meet the standards he sets in his word? That outburst caused quite a stir in the monastery. But the crisis reached an all-time high when it was time for me to do my first mass. Now, Dad and I had made up. And Dad had come around to the idea that I wasn't going to be a lawyer, but hey, I was going to be a priest. And so he was quite proud, not of his son, the lawyer, but of his son, the priest. And so at the first Mass, he invited all his important friends and colleagues and partners, and they came along to participate in the first Mass. And there I was, dressed up in the garb, looking really good, and everything was going so well. Until we got to that very moment where we had to pray that prayer of consecration. I remember what we used to do in those days is we would pray the prayer of consecration And at that point, we believed that the bread would become the very body of Christ. And the blood would become the very, sorry, the the wine would become the very blood of Christ. And as I was there about to say those words, my heart was gripped with fear. My lips started stammering. And I realized in that moment that I just could not utter those words. It was a disaster. Fortunately, one of my colleagues stepped in and wrapped up the mess, but afterwards I'd have faced my dad, and he sat there, and he said, Martin, what is wrong with you? And I said, Dad, do you not understand? As I was standing right there, and I realized as I was about to pray those words, that as a sinful man, how can I stand there holding the very body of Christ and the very blood of Christ? I just could not do it, Dad. The second crisis in my life happened when I went on a pilgrimage to Rome. Every year, two of the brothers from the monastery would be selected, and they would go. This was my time in 1510. Maybe this would be it. Maybe, maybe the holy of holy cities. Maybe in this city, I would eventually find God. I would find salvation. I'd find that peace that I'd been desiring for the, my entire life. But when I arrived in Rome, I became even more disillusioned. Priests would line up the masses, get people in and get people out as fast as possible so they could get done with all the important things. Sexual immorality was rife amongst the clergy. It it was terrible. I was sickened to the pit of my stomach. In desperation, I went to the Lateran Church. This would be it. The Lateran Church. Now, in the Lateran church, the crusaders had gone to Jerusalem, and they'd brought back the steps, the very steps 
the same steps on which Jesus had been taken up and down when he stood before Pontius Pilate. These were holy relics. It doesn't get much better than this. Maybe as I cried out to God on these same steps in which Jesus cried out, in which Jesus defended, in which Jesus stood, maybe on these very steps I would find salvation. And so I threw myself down at his mercy, cried and prayed. And when I got to the top, I said to no one in particular, Who knows if this is true? The doubt in my heart that pierced my soul that day was not relieved until the third and the final crisis. But before that third and final crisis, after getting back to Erfurt, I was tasked to go and join the university in Wittenberg. Wittenberg was a young town, less than 2,000 people. But Frederick the Wise... Who had, been, who had been put forward by the Pope to be the new emperor of the Roman world, very smartly stood back and supported Charles of Spain. And in that process, he had gained political favor and friendship. Little did I know it at the time, but Frederick would be a key protector in my life. I had no idea I would need one. But because of his wisdom, he had decided he wanted to start and build Saxony into a world leading center, and Wittenberg was going to be his new capital. He was building a university to rival the great universities like Heidelberg in Germany, and so he was calling for professors to join, and the Augustinians sent me to Wittenberg. It was in Wittenberg where I developed my understanding of what is called sensus literalis, the literal sense of the word. And the literal sense of the word is simply this, that you interpret Scripture in the same way that it was intended to be written. So you interpret poetry using the rules and laws of poetry. You interpret history using the rules and laws of history. And you interpret prophecy using the rules and the laws of prophecy. And this led to that third and final crisis in 1515. I'd been tasked to do a series of lectures on the Book of Romans. And as I started preparing for Romans, I opened the book and I read Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Here was this concept that had scared me my entire life, righteousness. Here was this thing that I'd been pursuing my whole life with my whole heart and never been able to obtain. And here it was right in front of me, and I was saying, God, once again I'm faced with this dilemma. What, Lord? How, Lord? How do I engage? And how do I receive? And how do I walk in your righteousness? And in that ultimate state of desperation, the Holy Spirit revealed a new and a radical understanding to me. You see, in the gospel, we'll live by faith, sometimes interpreted justified by faith. The Latin had translated it to God makes us righteous, 
In other words, you're justified, you are made righteous. And so the church had said, you are made righteous by the sacraments, by these works, by penance. And no matter how hard I try to do these things, I could never feel or be as righteous as the Word of God said I needed to be. But when I looked at the original Greek, I saw something unique. The Greek doesn't say to make righteous. The Greek simply says to regard righteous, to count righteous, to declare as righteous. All of a sudden, the lights turned on in my heart and my mind. I realized for the first time, this is not about me making myself righteous to be as righteous as he is, but it's simply to receive his righteousness, to be regarded as righteous as a result of what he has done, not as what I have done. And all of a sudden, and all of a sudden I realized that it's not my righteousness. It's an alien righteousness wrapped up in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In that moment, I became born again. In that moment, all of a sudden, I understood what the Scriptures had been trying to tell me my entire life. I recounted the various passages that I'd memorized, and I realized that every single one of them confirmed the very same truth, that it's not my righteousness, but it's His. And when I saw it in Romans, I started seeing it on every single page in God's Word. I was so excited that I just needed to tell the entire world. I needed to tell the entire church. And I believed, and I thought at that time, that every single monk, every single priest, the Pope himself would be so inspired by the revelation that God had given me. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Back in Rome, the Pope was building St. Peter's. But he was running out of money, and so the answer to building St. Peter's was to sell more indulgences. Now, what are indulgences? Very simply, what in, how indulgences work is this. When you end your life one day, you are weighed up to see how righteous you are. If you are righteous enough, you go straight to heaven. If not, you go to a place called purgatory, and you do time in purgatory as these other little blemishes are kind of washed out of your life. On the other hand, there were some people, certain saints, Jesus, Mary, that were so righteous that they had extra credits. They didn't need all those credits to get to heaven. And so those extra credits end up in this place, in this vault, this vault of credits. And the Pope who had the keys was able to unlock this vault, take out credits, and bestow them on people that he chose to bestow them upon. What a great way to make money. And so, Tetzel, that dog Tetzel, a Dominican monk, went out under the auspices of the church of the day. He would come into a town with such pomp and ceremony, it would make most charismatic services look pretty dull. He would, at the crescendo of his sermon, cry out and say, can you hear your loved ones crying out in purgatory? He has the solution. Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That dog Tetzel was leading people astray, and I needed to do something. And so I was so angry that I nailed those 95 theses, speaking out against the injustice of indulgences, 
Now, as I said, I didn't want to stir up the people. I wrote it in Latin. I wrote it in the academic language of the day. I was inviting a debate. I was saying, come to Wittenberg so we can engage, so we can discuss, so we can get back to the truth, the principles of God's Word. Two things happened. Firstly, no one showed up for the debate. Secondly, my students got hold of these theses, translated it into German, and then put them through the new Gutenberg Press, and within two weeks, these were all over Germany. It was a social media sensation. Despite my disgust with what I'd seen in Rome with the church, my heart was still to see the church restored to its former glory. And so, I asked for opportunities to make a defense of these theses. And three different times I went. And each time I thought this was the opportunity for us to engage and to hear what God is saying to us as a church. But there was never a debate. It was simply repent, Martin, recant, Martin, and return. What they cleverly did was they positioned me in such a way to look very much like a heretic. They they, they compared me to this man called John Huss. Huss, whose name directly translates to goose, lived in Prague in 1415, 100 years before. He was a university professor. He published some works, and in these works he said this. He said, he declared that the Scriptures alone contained the inspired Word of God and could not be equaled by the edicts and teachings of the church. As a result, he was tried and burnt. When he would not recant, just before he was killed, he said this. You may burn or cook this goose, but there will come after me a swan that you will not be able to silence or destroy. Was I the swan that John Huss was prophesying 100 years before? In the meantime, the Pope had lost all ability to try and convince me of changing my ways and so burnt all my books and signed a papal bull declaring me as a heretic. Three months later, when that arrived in Wittenberg, I returned the compliment by burning the papal bull in the church square. Eventually, Charles the emperor intervened, and he called a diet, and a diet would be a council of the most senior, uh, uh, senior clergy and the most senior rulers of the day, and this would be an opportunity for me to make a defense of these statements and these writings that I'd been putting out. Once again, naively, I thought people would listen. There'd be a debate, and we'd find God's truth. But again, it was simply Martin, repent, recant, and return. Which led me to say this. Unless I'm convinced by sacred scripture or evident reason, I cannot recant, for my conscience is held captive by the word of God. And to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Although I had been promised safe conduct by the emperor, those promises evaporated pretty quickly right there and then. And if it hadn't been for my friends, smart friends, who staged a fake kidnapping and whisked me off to Wartburg, that might have been the end of me right there and then. And whilst I was hiding in Wartburg, I wrote and interpreted and translated the New Testament into German. 
And by 1522, copies of the New Testament were available in local languages for less than two weeks' wages, which up until then were unheard of. In 1525, I married the most beautiful woman in the world, Catherine von Bora, a former nun from a very noble family. And we made up for lost time, and God blessed us with six amazing children. Despite being declared an outlaw, I survived and continued to minister and write for another 25 years and died at the ripe old age of 62. The Reformation not only brought about significant restoration of truth into the church, but also impacted all of society and was instrumental in what kicked off a period of productivity, progress, and wealth in Europe. It was clear to me from Scripture that the maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays, not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. That the Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty, not by putting little crosses on the soles of his shoes, but by making good shoes, because God loves good craftsmanship. I saw in Scripture that all work is worship. And when we work to the glory of the King, we feel His pleasure upon our lives. The monk that shook the world, I don't know, maybe, maybe the attorney who gave up on the law. But there are three things that stand out to me now as I reflect upon my life. The first is this, that without the legal training that God put me through, it would have been impossible for me to have processed and understood the Word and the law in the way that I did. That legal training made it impossible for me to pretend that it's okay. That was the skill set, the talent, the gifting that God built into me. It wasn't wasted. Secondly, I realized that the struggles, the crises that I went through, were a necessary part of God's development in my life. Sometimes Christians, I see them, they feel like, God, if I'm doing your will, it should all be easy. Well, if you're really doing my will, I believe God says, you're going to face opposition but I will bring you through it safely. The third thing I realized is that that final revelation came as I got to the end of all of my own efforts and relied fully on the Word of God and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I lived a full life. I found His purpose in the center of incredible resistance, but was able to push through because that's what he had designed for me to do. What has he designed for you to do? What are those unique longings in your soul? What are those unique passions in your heart that he has given you and you alone? What are those gifts, those skills, those abilities that he's given you naturally and he's caused you to study and develop? 
Maybe some of them are hovering just below the surface right now, but God's going to use those to bring about change in your life and change in His kingdom. I change the world not by trying to be someone great, but what I did change the world simply because I wouldn't give up and I wouldn't give in and ultimately had to trust in Him and Him alone. And I have a feeling that you will too. Let's pray. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Lord, as we reflect on a man that you used 500 years ago to bring about such an incredible change, how you reinstated such truth back into the body of Christ, Lord, we are inspired and we are humbled, Lord. And folks, as we're just praying right now, I want to ask you, what are those skills, gifts, talents, and abilities that is placed inside of you that might be hovering just below the surface? I believe God's word to you this morning is, none of that is wasted. They're there for a reason. Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, God, why is it so hard? Why am I facing such opposition? Why do these crises keep coming? And maybe it's because what he's given you is worth fighting for. And he's saying, I want you to press in and I want you to press on. And finally, I believe there's a challenge that he's saying, you want to serve me, you want to love me. You want to be, do great things in my kingdom for me. The solution lies as you get close to me. In my word, led by the Spirit, and engaging with me. If any of that has touched you this morning, and you're saying, God, I want to just reinvigorate that call of my life, Lord. God, I want to stand and I want to live for something larger than myself. And I want to press on and press through. Then will you stand to your feet? Because I believe it's going to be a declaration this morning as we just submit our lives completely to Him once again and say, God, have your way. Have your way in my life and have your way in my heart. So that's you. Just stand to your feet. You know, you know who you are if you need to stand. Don't feel, don't stand because others are standing. Stand because this is something you want to do with God. This is a commitment you want to make to Him. So Lord, we come before you and we say, Father, thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, for leading us, for guiding us, for taking us through the various crises in our life, Lord, and for preparing the way on those we still need to go through. God, our heart's desire is to love you, to serve you, to engage with you, and Lord Jesus, to see your kingdom built and established through us and in us. And so, Lord, we give this to you right now. Lord, I pray for wisdom. I pray for breakthrough. I pray for faith, Lord Jesus, that every step on which we put our feet, Lord Jesus, you have given it to us, and we will see your kingdom established and your kingdom breakthrough in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.